To you, Father, we come with hearts full of thanksgiving that you are the Lord of our lives, that you are the sovereign of the universe, that you are the one who cares for us above our ability to even comprehend. Our desire is, of course, to minister to others, and yet your ability is far beyond ours. We're thankful, Lord, that you have promised to be present with us, your people, to be in our midst, to speak to us from your word. We place faith in the fact that your spirit is here today to speak to each one of us. We trust that your word will become living and powerful in our lives. Guide our study time here together this morning. And I pray that in the service that is transpiring concurrently and in the other Sunday school classes that you will uh, touch lives, that you will accomplish your good purpose today. And we'll thank you for what you do in the name of Jesus. Amen. We are in the 19th chapter of the book of Numbers, and we're studying a rather enigmatic teaching. It's the ordinance or the law of the red heifer. And many are concerned about this because of factors that have been in the news in the last few months. And it's, uh, there, there's a lot of uncertainty about this. In fact, uh, one source says that it is the most enigmatic, most mysterious of all of the teachings of the Old Testament, the ordinance of the red heifer. Last Sunday, we brought in an article that deals with this, and it's from the perspective of Judaism. It's from the perspective of a person who is actually searching for the old implements of the tabernacle, of the temple, I should say, with the goal of having these things ready for the end times. This is an interesting idea. And the article mentions the fact that the arrival of the red heifer created a great deal of stir in world news because of the coverage. But what is interesting is that it has recently been discovered that the red heifer has some white hairs on it. Therefore, it is unfit to be the red heifer. Now, the individual about which this article is primarily uh, focused is a man who is looking for the kalal, which is the, the container in which the ashes were placed. Now, you and I have read the chapter in the scripture, and we know that it says there that there was to be a place uh, cleansed outside the camp where the ashes were to be placed. It does not call it by any name. It does not say there was a specific bowl. But this is what he is looking for. He is looking for this container because in it will be the ashes of the previous nine red heifers. And you might wonder, where does that come from? Well, it doesn't come from this book. It comes from the Mishnah. Now, in a study of Judaism, you will discover a great deal of confusion. What you discover is that Judaism today is not simply Old Testament biblical practices being carried out by modern Jews. It's a religion that has gone through transformation and evolution over the past 2,000, 2,500 years in particular, ever since the Old Testament came to a conclusion, about 400, 300, 300, 400 B.C., the Old Testament came to a conclusion. In between, we have what is called the intertestamental period before the New Testament begins. The Jews do not call it that because they do not consider the New Testament to be anything. It's just the post-biblical record period of time. 
in that time, there developed the concept of the leadership of Israel being the rabbi. And through the centuries, the rabbis became the formulators of the faith. And about 200, the year 200 after the death of Christ, uh, 200, they put together, uh, began to assemble the teachings of the rabbis, which are comprised in a work called the Mishnah, which is 66 tracts all put together in this very large work which describes what Judaism is and deals with various issues of you know, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be in the temple, what it means to do these sacrifices, and all of this. Now, much of what the Jews believe about their faith is not derived primarily from the Torah, or the Tanakh, as they refer to the whole Old Testament, but it comes from the Mishnah. They view it as an evolving faith, not a faith based on a teaching in the past which has remained static, but a constantly evolving faith. And they, they readily admit that modern Judaism only extracts from the biblical teaching. Moses is still, of course, the great man of, of Judaism. He is considered the founder of Judaism. But the, the thing of it is, the law which came forth from Moses came forth in two forms, they say. One form was the, the Torah, which is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible written, but that there also was an oral law. And that oral law has been transmitted orally. And the rabbis were therefore the formulators of it and putting it together in the Mishnah. Now the Mishnah has further been expanded by the, what's known as the Talmud. The Talmud is basically a commentary on the Mishnah, which further expands this. And so this is where you get these kinds of things. And this article even says that the total of nine red cows comes from the tractate Parah in the Mishnah. That's where they get it. You don't get it from the Bible. We, we have no idea from the Bible how many red heifers there were. You, know, well, you think about this. There were only nine red heifers. This means you had to preserve those ashes for a very long time to, to make them last throughout the period that supposedly this has covered. Well, the concept is that when the tenth red heifer appears, this will be time of Messiah. So it's very important, you see, when this ten, tenth red heifer shows up. Now, in another of the, well, the same tractate in the Mishnah, it says that the, the ashes of any subsequent heifer must be mingled with the previous nine. So you wonder, how did this happen? Well, according to... Jewish um, history, uh, in the period of the first and second temples, that's the Solomonic temple and then the, um, the temple that was built after the Exodus and which was refurbished by Herod and destroyed by the Romans in the year 70, during that period they began taking the ashes of the red heifer and they divided it into thirds. One third was set aside for the Levites and the Levites would use it in, in carrying out what we're reading about here in the uh, 19th chapter of Numbers. A second part was to be kept for just the priests. So the priests could be clean when they went into the temple and when the time came for them to have to sacrifice yet uh, another red heifer. A third portion of it was set aside in perpetuity. It was to be preserved and therefore mingled with the third from the next red heifer so that you've got this constant mingling of nine thirds of thirds of nine red heifers ashes if you will 
And, and that's why this guy's looking for this re container, because in it supposedly would still be the ashes of these previous nine red heifers. And that's necessary to mix those ashes with the tenth to make it all come together. Got that? <laughs> now, the problem is Judaism through the centuries has been heavily impacted by mysticism. In the Middle Ages, there was the teaching of the Kabbalah, uh, which is, I mean, it's hocus pocus that got all mixed into this thing. And as, as a result, you, you're ending up with a day and age in which we live, in which you have Jews in Israel, most of whom don't give a rip about any of this. You know, they're just secular people living in a secular state and trying to survive in the midst of a, an antagonistic uh, world. But you do have a minority of people who really are looking forward to the coming of Messiah and who believe they've got to help this to happen by virtue of the fact that they have to find these things. You know, they have to find the breastplate, the ephod. They have to find the, uh, the, the kalal and, and whatever else that they can find. And, of course, they've been searching for it. And if you've seen some of these, quote, documentaries that have come along every once in a while, somebody claims that he was prowling around underneath the temple precinct and voila, he saw the um, Ark of the Covenant. I don't think so, but that's what he claimed. And, you know, th this kind of thing, it, it makes for big news today. It, it stirs people up. It really creates a tremendous division in Israel because you have the rightists represented by people like Netanyahu who, who are looking forward to a strong Isra Israeli state. And then you have the leftists who have the old Hebrew idea that, you know, God's in charge. Whatever happens, happens, you know, and everybody in between. And so it creates a very uh, strange state in, in a world. And what's interesting is that Israel's going to survive because God has ordained that Israel will survive. And it isn't going to be because they have found the Kalal or they have found the Ephod or they have found the Ark. Because all of those were signs that were leading to the coming of Messiah. They're still looking forward to Messiah. But unfortunately, Messiah has come. Unfortunately, from their perspective. Fortunately for us, of course. Fortunately for the world. It's uh, interesting because <clears throat> the Jews have been so maltreated by, quote, Christians down through the centuries that they are very afraid that Jesus might be the Messiah. In fact, we were again listening to a, a whole series of tapes we have that Erwin Lutzer gave on called Hitler's Cross. And he uh, deals with the whole thing of the Holocaust, and uh, he, he says that so often Jews will pray, O oh Lord, let Messiah be anybody, anybody but Jesus, because they cannot bear the thought that Christians were right after all they have been put through by Christians. He even quotes Martin Luther and Augustine and other great saints who were very vitrolic in their statements against the Jews. Unfortunately, huh. he even says it's too bad Luther didn't die about 10 years sooner than he did because in his old age he got very nasty in some of the comments he made about the Jews because he expected them all to come to Christ as soon as the um, you know, Reformation broke forth. And when that didn't happen, he just basically thought they ought to be exterminated, which is unfortunate thinking, but was very uh, influential on the Nazis. You know, they used Luther as an excuse for what they did. Now, God knew all this, right? God knows all this, 
And why did God give Hitler 10, I mean, uh, yeah, well, Hitler too, but why did God give Luther 10 extra years? I, you know, I don't know. God does not pave the way to heaven with lilies and make it broad and inviting. It, we're told in the scripture it's a narrow path. It has a small gate. The broad way leads to destruction, and few there be that find it. So all of these hurdles are part of God's plan. The Jews are still God's people, and we have to view them as such. And I think as believers today, we need to love them. And as the scripture says, we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We might think, how can we pray for the impossible? <laughs> how can we possibly believe that Jerusalem is going to have peace? Well, because the scripture says that one day there will be peace in Jerusalem. And we need to pray for that. But as we consider this, this whole a matter of the red heifer. Let me read what this person says in summary of his article. Once the ashes are found from the previous nine red heifers, the righteousness of Israel will be purified, found guiltless, and bring forth a child called Messiah. The impact of this rite, even on the Jewish people of today, is so significant that one of the leading researchers in this area has stated that the mitzvah, the commandment, of the red heifer represents the totality of the Torah, of the law, of the Pentateuch. That represents the totality in his statement. Well, if it represents the totality, it has a relatively minor location here <laughs> in the 19th chapter of Book of Numbers. It, it represents the totality in that the concept of cleanness and uncleanness and, and the things that we're focusing on is, is, is very important. And as Leroy pointed out this morning, which I didn't point out last week, was that the red heifer was, was uh, killed and burned outside the camp. And Christ, of course, was executed outside the city. He became sin and therefore unclean, so that God turned his eyes away, that he might become sin for us. The red heifer, as it was burned, caused everybody who came in contact with it to become unclean. And yet it was used for cleansing. That's an enigma. How can that which you touch, which makes you unclean, be used for cleansing? But that's exactly the picture of Christ. He became unclean, became sin for us, that we in turn then might receive the cleansing, the righteousness of God. It's a, it's a wonderful mirror image. Well, not a mirror image, an exact replica of, of what it's about. And, and that, in my opinion, that's what these teachings of the Old Testament are all about. They are, as Paul says, the tutor. They are training us to understand Messiah and, and to understand the teachings of the New Testament. They prepare us for that. They were preparing the Jews for that. And those that have heard and believed understand that. And there's nobody who better understands the whole scripture than a converted Jew who was trained up in the ways of, of, of the law because he knows the ins and outs and, and can present it in a way that we Gentiles who come at it from the outside have a struggle with, you know, because we think, oh, all this blood and all these dead animals, you know, it just seems kind of gross to us. But, but the, the picture is there. And, and that is the whole purpose behind each of these rituals that, were, that was carried on by ancient Israel. Let's read at verse 14 of Numbers 19. 
This is the law when a man dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. And every open vessel which has no covering tied down on it shall be unclean. Also anyone who is in the open field, anyone who in the open field touches one who has been slain with a sword or has died naturally, or a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. Then for the unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt purification from sin, and flowing water shall be added to them in a vessel. And a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on the furnishings and on the persons who were there and on the one who touched the bone or the one slain or the one dying naturally or the grave. Then the clean person shall sprinkle on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall purify him from uncleanness. And he shall wash his clothes, bathe himself in water, and shall be clean by evening. We read that and we say, why? <laughs> what's, the, what's the point of all this? One of the things we discover from this, and I've emphasized this before as we read the first part of the chapter, is that it teaches the pervasiveness of death. Death is inevitable. It comes to us all. And we don't know when it's going to come, and we don't know how it's going to come. But death was, was going to be prevalent amongst Israel, particularly as we noted already, because the, all those 20 years of age and older were going to be dying in the wilderness, and, and so death was going to be a common phenomenon. Just entering a tent in which someone was dead, or being in the tent when they died, produced ceremonial uncleanness. Now, we have to remember that that's what this is talking about. Ceremonial uncleanness. As I've said before, in the Protestant church, we don't even have such a concept. Even though maybe to some degree we should. At least relative to sin. We're told in this passage that open containers in such a tent and the furnishings of such a tent became unclean. And all had to be purified in this seven-day ritual, which is described for us here. Now, there may have been a pathogenic reason for this. There, there may have been some kind of health reason why, if the container was open, it, it needed to be set aside for seven days, and everything needed to be allowed to sit for seven days, maybe so germs would die. I, I don't know. But the primary reason for all of this is ceremonial uncleanness, not biological uncleanness. The primary reason. Because, and then further it tells us in this passage that if someone came in contact with a dead person out in the open, not inside a tent, that it only became unclean if he actually touched the person or a dead bone of a person or a grave. Now, I don't know about you, I could walk through a graveyard and touch a gravestone and not feel like I've polluted myself in any way. But, but that's the concept here. It isn't that by touching that gravestone, suddenly germs are going to crawl up your arm, you know, and go inside and kill you, uh, because, you know, it doesn't happen that way, usually, I guess. But uh, it, it all has to do with teaching the people that death comes to all persons. Now, we might consider the rulings here to be onerous. If I had to go around this way, how would you like to be a coroner? Or an undertaker, you know? I mean, you'd be ceremonially unclean all the time. Now, of course, in those days, they didn't have the profession of undertaker in Israel. You buried your own dead. There 
these rules would seem very burdensome to us, but in reality they weren't burdensome to Israel because they kept them aware of the curse of sin and death. It kept them aware of their mortality. Many people today in our society in, get themselves involved in what they get themselves involved in because they don't think of their mortality. They don't think of how quickly life can be over and then you, then you face the music, as we would say in the vernacular. I, I think if people were really acutely aware of their mortality and that they faced a God for whom they'd have to answer for what they would do, I think a lot of people would stop driving race cars and bungee jumping and air, you know, parachuting and a lot of other things they would stop doing because death could come in the next moment. What, what this did then, and I think this is the bottom line, it caused them to be aware of the importance of living an obedient lifestyle now, here, this moment because this might be your last moment. Our society, as you well know, has a fixation for youth. <laughs> I don't know if you read it, but I read a little blurb once about uh, Bridget Bardot. Now, those of you who are young probably don't know who she was, but <laughs> she was kind of the French Marilyn Monroe. And she's in the news because she's into animal preservation. But she's one who looks her age because she said, I don't go and get my face lifted every time a wrinkle shows up like all those Hollywood people do. And mortality uh, shows up really quickly in reality. And those who look like they're still uh, 40 when they're 80 have had some things done to them. You know, it hasn't lengthened their lives. It's just made them appear a little less close to the casket, you know, <laughs> than, than others. The importance of living an obedient life now because we may face our Creator in the next moment and have to answer to Him for the life which we have lived. Ronald Allen in his commentary says, given the factor of uncleanness, the cleansing water becomes a great gift of grace. Moreover, family members were freed to minister to the bodies of their deceased loved ones knowing that their ritual impurity could be removed. There, you see, there's a, there's a psychological, there's an emotional element in this where they go through this ritual and they can be free. They can be freed. It's symbolic of what Christ has done. He has, done to set a, he has died to set us free. So, so we're not chained into this guilt but we can be free from this knowing that Christ has saved us from all of our sins. Yes, I may go out and, and I may sin tomorrow, but I can throw that sin onto the cross knowing it has been forgiven because when Christ took me as his own, he cleansed me from all unrighteousness from the beginning of my life to the end of my life because he is the all-knowing God. You imagine God saves us and then he discovers uh, two weeks later that uh, we're going to do some dastardly deed. And he says, uh-oh. <laughs> well, you know, there are branches of Protestantism, unfortunately, which believe that. And they believe that, you know, every week you have to go get saved again. Well, that's pretty, uh, you know, that's exhausting to think about. And it's not that we become saved so that we can, like Paul says, then go out and act like the devil because, you know, we're saved. No. 
It goes all back to the, the basic Reformation theology. And that is, if you're truly saved, your life will demonstrate it. And if your life doesn't demonstrate it, the natural <laughs> you know, response is, you're not saved. A lot of people go down and raise their hand in a meeting or go down and pray a little prayer, but, but they have not repented. Repentance means we're willing to change our lifestyle. We know, God, we're wrong. Cleanse us from the sin. Change my life. And then it becomes a reality. But many people just go, you know, flaunting down the aisle there and pray a little prayer, and they think it's, you know, just kind of a little cleansing on the outside, and, and nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. For Israel... None of this worked if the heart was not in it. In fact, I, I was reading a, a modern Jewish commentator. I mean, he's into modern Judaism. He's as far from Christianity as anybody else is. But he basically says that the rituals of Judaism only work if the heart is in it. But that's very close to the truth. I mean, we can go through the form of Christianity without ever knowing the reality of it. Because the heart has not been in it. We've, we've got to become saved from the inside out. Transformed. You know, that, what's, you know, what Scripture says, we've been made new creatures in Christ. If we're a new creature, we depart from the old ways. That doesn't mean the old ways don't ever once in a while sneak up on us and knock us down. But that is not our passion. Our passion isn't to live the old way. Our passion is to live the new way. And we fail. But it pains us when we fail. And we repent and, and we return to the way God has set before us. This is a Christian life. It may sound exhausting, too. And, and for most of us, you know, if we're honest, it is, it is tiresome after a while having to say, oh, Lord, I blew it again today. But that's what he wants us to do. We're to be constantly aware of our need to come to him every day for cleansing. And that's what these rituals are here for. So Israel will be reminded of this. So they don't take their faith for granted. In verses 17 to 19 of this passage, we read that the ashes of the red heifer were to be mixed with water from a stream or spring. The actual Hebrew there is living water. Living water means water that is in motion, not stagnant water. You couldn't go to some old dead pool and dip the water out. It had to be fresh water coming from a spring or coming from a um, stream. Now, what's interesting is, in the Mishnah, they have decided what this means is that it's water that when you sprinkle the ashes onto the water, it's got to make the water ripple. If the ashes are so fine they don't make the water ripple, it doesn't count. Well, you know, that's not exactly what it says here. And, you know, that becomes splitting hairs, I think. The idea is that it's fresh water that you mix the ashes in. And then a clean person was to take a piece of hip, hyssop, a branch of the hyssop bush, and, and dip it in the mixture and go around sprinkling the people and the objects with the water. This was to be done on the third day and on the seventh day. And as I mentioned to you last time, we don't know why third day and seventh day. We can read into it. You know, third day, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, seventh day, the number of God, you know, the, the number that repeats itself so often in Scripture. And, and maybe that's the reason. It's just that that's what God ordained. Jews in, in studying this, you know, not Christian Jews, but Jews, modern-day Jews studying this, say that it becomes a ritual that you did simply out of faith, not because you understood it. 
they, they say that even Solomon the Wise could not understand the ritual of the red heifer. Well, where do they get that? It comes from the Mishnah. A lot of things come from the Mishnah. Elmer Smick, who is one of the commentators in the Wycliffe Bible commentary, uh, says this, anything having to do with death, contaminated. The people could not help becoming defiled occasionally. Therefore, the water of impurity was always available. Any clean person could perform this duty. It did not require a priest. The purpose of this provision was to make cleansing from unavoidable contact with the dead readily accessible. See, we always have to view these things, I think, from the positive point of view rather than the negative point of view. Another ritual I got to go through. How many hoops do I have to leap through here? It was a ritual that brought cleansing, brought a sense of freedom. It brought, it brought um, termination to the death of this person. The person has died, the person is buried, have been ritually cleansed, let's get on with life. That, that has emotional, spiritual, psychological importance. Verse 20, but the man who is unclean and does not purify himself from uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water for impurity has not been sprinkled on him, he is unclean. So it shall be a perpetual statute for them. And he who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes, and he who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. Furthermore, anything that the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of like you are contagious. You're unclean, and anybody and anything you touch becomes unclean. It's almost like being a leper. Why? Because it pictures sin. And sin is exactly that. It's a disease that spreads. It's contagious. It's the most insidious thing there is in this planet. It's always lurking. It's always there to spring. And the problem is, it has an ally in us called the flesh. Scripture teaches us that we war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Paul tells us you can't get out of the world. So you've got to live in the world. So what we have to do is to know how to live righteously in an unrighteous world. We have to know how to do war with flesh, which doesn't want to do the right thing. Paul says in, in, in Romans 7 that in the flesh I do that which I don't want to do in the spirit. You know, my spirit says, no, my flesh says, yes. And there's this war. And unfortunately, this war goes on until, until we're dead. Certain areas of it, of course, I think improve, particularly as we uh, seek God for strength and victory. But we'll never be without a struggle because our natural flesh is allied to the devil in the world. So that's one of the reasons why we have a triune God, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit to deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil. I'm just making that up, but you know, it's, it's an interesting, interesting parallel when you think about that. I don't want to push that at all. But this is another example, I think, of the fact that God is serious. He repeats his warning. How many God, times does God tell us something? Well, it seems like ad nauseum after a while, but how long, often do we need to hear it? <laughs> ad nauseum, you know, it seems. God this is so true. God does not blindside us. He never comes up and goes, whack, you should have known better, without warning us. 
<laughs> I mean, he tells the people of Israel over and over and over again so that when they sin, they have absolutely no excuse. They can't say, well, I didn't know or I forgot. Well, there is no excuse for disobedience. And I think it's really important that we all come to that place where we don't make excuses for our disobedience because you and I will this next week in some way disobey God. It's inevitable because we're not perfect yet. And we just must make no excuses. We must come to God in repentance. And God, that's what he wants. It's not so much the bad thing that we did, but the refusal to repent of it. That's what grieves the heart of God. He's already forgiven the sin. We need to come to him to have that restoration of fellowship. That's why he keeps repeating over and over again. In the 21st verse, we find that the clean person who sprinkled the water for purification and all of those who had any part in preparing the water for purification, all were to wash their clothes and remain unclean until the evening. That is, until the dawn of the new day. I shouldn't use the word dawn. It's the sunset of the new day. As you know, in the Hebrew world, uh, the new day began at sunset. So you know, that's kind of nice, really, because you get to live a little bit of the day, then sleep and live some more of the day. The way we do it, you know, we go to sleep and we sleep the first part of the day and then we live all the rest of it in one blob. <laughs> so the people who, who did the preparation and the sprinkling were unclean, but they were washed their clothes and then at sunset they would become clean. That was God's way of doing it. All they were to do was to trust and obey. Finally, we're told that anything or anyone who touched or was touched by an unclean person would remain unclean until evening. No one could ever say that he did not understand the awful consequences of sin. You and I live in a society where sin is denied. We're told that Everybody does what's right in his own eyes because what's right in your eyes is what's right for you. What's right for me may not be right for you. And what's right for you may not be right for me, but we're both right. You know, we're into a world where everything's right. And absolutes are out the window and wrong is out the window. And you can imagine, you know, Beth could testify to this, how difficult it is to work in the area of psychology especially if there are no absolutes, if you, if you were in a, a nebulous world where there aren't any walls anywhere, how do you help people in that kind of con, uh, you know, framework? There's no framework. We were listening to a, a tape by Ravi Zacharias, and he was in debate with uh, some fella who was a philosopher, and the guy was saying, the problem with you is you're in that old-fashioned idea of absolutes. That's, that's out today. There are no absolutes. What's right for you may not be right for me. What's right for me may not be right for you. And whatever we do is okay. It's tough to live a life like that. That's not the biblical life. As you well know, the Bible draws clear boundaries, clear framework. There is an absolute right. There is an absolute wrong. And the thing of it is, he built that in us because we are imago Dei. We are made in the image of God. So there is a sense in which we know what's right and wrong. And the only way we can get to this place of believing that there is, are no absolutes is to sear our conscience, to make ourselves so callous that we actually believe a lie. Well, let's move on to the 20, 20th chapter. This is a very, very crucial chapter in the history of Israel in the wilderness. Because in this chapter, we have the record of the deaths of both Miriam and Aaron, 
and we have the record of the great sin of Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And all of this helps us to understand that God cannot be manipulated. Oh God, I have been such a good leader of Israel all these years. You're not going to prevent me from going to the land because of a little mistake. The great man Moses, who had been God's instrument, the man through whom God had spoken, who had led Israel through the 40 years, will not go into the land for one reason. And that's because he denied the glory of God before Israel. Well, let's read uh, the first five verses of the chapter. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. And there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and said, and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into the wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. I've been in the wilderness of Zin. It's not a terribly pleasant place. It's in the region south of the Negev. It's one of those places like, like you would see in some of the old western, bee westerns, you know. If, if there was any plant growth at all, it was like sagebrush stuff, you know. Otherwise, just barren rocks and barren areas. Jagged rocks and hills, lots of dry wadis, only water running in them if a s- storm happened to come along rather infrequently. The Israelites came to this very spot, Kadesh, in the second year of the Exodus. And you and I remember it well. We studied it back just in the 14th chapter. They came to this place and God said, okay, we're going to go into the land from here now. And, uh, you know, Moses said, well, why don't we send in some spies? The people, people suggested that. And so Moses said, okay, let's do that. And God said, it's fine, send in spies. So they sent in the spies and you know what happened. Ten of them just said, oh, no, yeah, it's a great land, got lots of good stuff, but boy, are the walls tall and the men are strong and you know, they have great armies. There's no way we can do this. And so the people rebelled there. At this very spot, they rebelled and said, we will not go in. Well, in the subsequent 37 years, they wandered through the wilderness. They wandered through the Sinai. They probably even wandered on the other side of the Gulf of Aqaba in what today would be southwestern Jordan and northwestern Saudi Arabia. They wandered in that whole area. It's not a very pleasant place. But they are now in the first month of the 40th year. 37 years have gone just like that. And we might say, whoops, where's the record? (laughs) It's obvious that the Lord did not inspire Moses to record those 37 years of wandering around out there. There are a few little summaries later on, but no detail is given here because what was it? It's more the same every day. And now they're at the site again, the site of their great sin. And as they arrive there, the scripture tells us Miriam dies. At about 130 years of age, the sister of Aaron and Moses, the one who had stood and watched Moses in the bulrushes, in the little basket, and who had ran to tell, had run to tell uh, Pharaoh's daughter, I can get you a wet nurse. And of course, the wet nurse was Moses' mother. This same woman, she is now dead. 
being the companion of Moses and Aaron for these 39 years in the wilderness. She was buried there at Kadesh. After the burial and the mourning period was over, Israel faced water shortage. As usual, the people gathered together to do what? <laughs> to complain to Moses and Aaron. Now think of this. By this time, we have 39 years are behind us, okay? Most all of those from age 20 and upward are now in the sand. They are gone. This is that next generation, the generation that's supposed to go into the land. This is the generation that's supposed to know better because of what happened to the previous generation, because of what God has done for them for 37, 38 years in the wilderness. This is that generation. And what are they doing? They gripe just like the previous generation. They had learned from their parents and their elders very well. You know, it doesn't take a lot of effort to teach a child to do bad things, to be negative. It's very easy. In fact, you don't have to do much of anything. What's hard is to teach a child to do what's right and to say right things. And if we as parents and grandparents don't model that, uh, there isn't much hope. You know. We have to model it as well as teach it. And obviously the previous generation hadn't modeled anything that was very good, and the next generation le learned all that bad stuff. And so they come. The faces have changed, but the attitude has not. And that is the history of the human race. And that is it's one of the things I try to emphasize. I teach world history at the college. One of the things I try to emphasize is it doesn't matter whether you lived in ancient Sumeria or if you live in the modern United States. You may be able to flip a switch and have electricity, and you may be able to sit at a computer and write a letter, and you don't have to carve it out on a piece of clay. But people have not changed. People are no better. People have not evolved. Uh, if anything, people are worse in, in terms of who they are as individuals. And, and so the teaching of the Bible never grows old because it's written by the author and maker of the human race. The complaints recorded in the third through the fifth verses here must have been to Moses and Aaron like a bad nightmare coming back. Oh no. If only we had died earlier. Why did you bring us into this wilderness to die? You made us leave Egypt to come to this wretched place. It was so wonderful in Egypt. Yeah. Glorious. Have you ever been to Egypt? Last I remember when we were flying over a portion of Egypt, there was a sandstorm down there so you couldn't even see the ground. That's a wonderful place. The thing that impressed us about Cairo was the fact that the trees were dirty. Doesn't rain, so the trees don't even get clean, you know. It was a wonderful place. And this wretched wilderness that they were in, you know. I mean, God had given them manna and water for 39 years without fail. Their shoes and clothes had not worn out. But when they come to Kadesh and there's a little lack of water, all they can do is say, oh, yes, God has provided. God will do it again. No. <laughs> Where's the water, Moses? You brought us to this wretched place to die. Of course, we've lived for 39 years in this wretched place and haven't died, but now we're going to die. All they could think about was the grain, the figs, the grapes, the pomegranates, and the water. I, like most, I don't like figs too much, but grapes and pomegranates, water and grain is all pretty good. <laughs> Probably today we'd say, where's the McDonald's, you know, where's the... <laughs> How much complaining had Moses and Aaron been listening to during that 37 years? 
I don't think that all of a sudden they thought, oh, let's complain. We haven't done it for 37 years. I think they've been complaining the whole route long. They've been lots of practice at it. And, and I mean, is that human nature or what? When you face a difficult situation, isn't complaint one of the things that tends to surface in your mind? You may have to stuff it back down again, but it's so easy to complain. It is so yucky hot today, you know? <laughs> or my toe is killing me or whatever. It's, it's so easy to complain. I was reading an article yesterday that's in the, uh, we get this paper from Jerusalem. It's written by Christians. And uh, there's a whole article in there about the fact that, yeah, difficult things are going to come into our lives. And sickness and death does come. But God is there through it all. He is sovereign, and nothing happens, happens outside of his sovereignty. And therefore, that's where we rest. That's where our foundation is. We can rest in the fact that he knows it all. And he is taking care of the situation. Not that we just sit there, you know, twiddle our thumbs, but... But we pray, we do what we have to do, but God is there, and that's our security, that's our peace. A big word should be written across the front of the scripture here, and that's the Hebrew word shalom. God intends for you and for me to have peace, deep down inside peace. Not to be, you know, about everything that's going on. Rest in his grace. He will bring it about when it's time. We may not see how it's going to happen. They stood there in this wilderness of Zin, and they looked around, and everywhere was parched. Where, is we, where are we going to get water? You know, they didn't have any drilling rig. Where are we going to get water? And there were no clouds in the sky. So rather than having faith because God had always provided before, they decide to complain. And Moses and Aaron, you've got to give credit to these two people. Despite the fact they're going to really mess up big time in the next few verses. They don't say, you bunch of complainers, you can just go out and lay down the sand die. I don't care. Uh, that's what we might have felt like. But they immediately went to the Lord in prayer to intercede for the people yet again. And God heard their prayer. They griped, they complained, and Moses and Aaron interceded, and God gave them water. Now, if you were God or I were God, what would we do? You guys are just going to desiccate down there because you have a bad attitude. I'm not going to give you any water. Either that or dump so much on them they're going like this, blub, blub, you know. <laughs> you want water? Well, of course, he did that with a quail, right? You want quail? All right. You're going to have quail. I mean, God does have a sense of humor. But Moses and Aaron went to God in intercession. Well, we'll have to pick up with that intercession next week beginning in verse 6, and then move on into the very uh, tragic account of Moses and Aaron taking the place of God before Israel, and as a result, receiving God's judgment.